So back in uh, 2018, a little bit before the pandemic, right, I was having dinner with a Cornerstone person. Are you here? Yeah, you're here. Uh, at Sweetgreen um, in Fenway area. So we get our food. We're enjoying catching up over our salads. I'm a chicken pesto parm guy. Anybody with me? Yes, one. Harvest bowl. That's my second. Boom, boom. We're enjoying our salads. And I'm sitting with my back against the wall, right? And so the cashier is over there. The back's here. And we're eating. I'm like eating my salad. And then this guy walks in. I do the... And I'm talking to this person, but I'm not paying attention anymore. I'm just watching this person get in line. And then my hands start getting clammy. My heartbeat starts, like, racing and beating. And then my mind starts to spin. And something came over me that said, go over there, go over there, go over there, go over there, go over there. And so I don't know if I interrupted this person, but I just stood up and like a, like a mosquito going to, like, the blue light. I walk over. I don't remember what I said, but I did tap him on the shoulder I think, I hope I asked for a picture instead of just like, uh, like, like mumbling. But this is what came out of it. Look at this picture up here. I don't know if you can see. He looks like a homeless man. So you might not recognize him. But if you go to the next picture, you're going to recognize this one. It was Julian Edelman, Super Bowl MVP, star Patriots wide receiver. I think whoever said boo probably doesn't have many rings, so that's okay. I have a few celebrity encounters in my life, but this was probably one of the most significant ones for me because how big of a fan I am of the Boston sports, right? And I was so nervous. I actually don't remember. I legitimately don't remember what I said, um, but I just walked over there, mumbled something, got a picture, and then nervously sat down. I was like, oh, like I ran a marathon, like, you know, like the adrenaline wore off. A part of me thinks of this memory like really fondly, um, and it makes me laugh, and it's, it's funny, and it's a cool you know, memory. Oh, I got to meet him, whatever. But a part of me also wonders, why did I freak out so much? Like, how does my heart rate raise so high? Like, I get so nervous. I'm usually a very comfortable person meeting new people. Like, I have to speak publicly for a living, but I fumbled with my words. Like, what happened to my body and my mind? just because I met somebody who runs really fast and catches balls really well. Like, at the end of the day, he's just a person. He's just an athlete, another dude. And interestingly, if you notice in the picture, he's small. Like, he's only, like, a little bit taller than me. How do you play in the NFL? He's just a dude. To human beings, like, we have this part of us where we elevate people to, like, super high stature if we enjoy something that they do really, really well. It's, it's natural for us to kind of, you know, elevate them, put them on like somewhat of a pedestal. And there are really amazing things that human beings accomplish that are like good for us to recognize, admire, be fans of, you know, all that good stuff. I'm not knocking it. It's, it's really good. But at the end of the day, they're no more special than us, than the everyday folks. They're no more valuable than you or me. They're just people, just like us. And I think we have a little bit of that experience, too, with our biblical, biblical heroes. And today's passage that we're going to read, Hebrews 11, is a prime example of this. Hebrews 11 is nicknamed the Hall of Faith, you know, play on words of Hall of Fame. If you've ever read through this passage, you'll know that the writer of Hebrews goes through all these famous people of the faith, like people who had a major role in God's story, some of the most famous people who ever walked planet Earth, the Jewish celebrities of our faith, if you will. This list is epic. 
of who's in it. These people changed history. Like the whole world is different because these people existed. And so I'm not going to downplay their place and their role in our faith and our history. But I do also want to say that at the end of the day, they were just people. Just people. So if we read this chapter and all we can think of and conclude is how amazing these people were and think, oh gosh, they're so much better than me, they're up there, I think we would actually do this scripture injustice. It's not why the writer of Hebrews put it in here. We nicknamed it the Hall of Faith. He wasn't writing it to say, oh, this is our Hall of Fame. It's good for us to admire them, learn from them, be equipped by them, but not for our focus to become completely on them. The main takeaway from today's reading is not for us to be amazed at these people, but rather for us to be amazed at the God that these people followed and put their faith in. To be amazed at the God who used them to do great historical work that changed history by his power, not through theirs. And to be amazed at the same exact God who's calling you to put your faith in him and who wants to change history through you too. So, My objective today is for us to be encouraged and admire, for sure, the faith-filled lives of these spiritual heroes and ancestors of ours, but to see how we are no different or or less valuable than them, and how God can use our faith similarly to impact history, to change the world, to change people's lives, and to use our lives to do that in the same way that he used theirs. So... Uh, Today we're going to read the whole chapter. It's a little long. Instead of reading up on the screen as we usually do, I'm just going to invite everyone to take out your Bible, if it's your phone or something else. Uh, It's going to be long, so I want to kind of ensure that you have a little bit of control of your attention. And we're going to be reading Hebrews 11. So pull that up, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read the whole thing, starting from the beginning of it. Verse 1, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was, that, he, that he was to receive by an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, was born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and of caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith and did not receive what was promised, Since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Whew, that was a lot. My mouth is tired. Okay, so we have this epic chapter, like tons of people who aren't even named in this hall of faith. And so how does it, why does it matter to me, to you? How do we learn about God through the lives of these people in the hall of faith? And how can God use you to change history too? First point, something that I garner from this chapter, is that God uses people with genuine faith. He changes the world. He changes history. He transforms people's lives through people who have a genuine faith. And I, and I mean to say genuine faith because I'm not saying 
superhero faith, like superior faith, doubtless faith, unwavering faith, just genuine, genuine faith. When we look at this list of people, we have some of the most famous people who ever lived, right? Moses, if I say Moses, I don't have to go and explain to you who I'm talking about. But Moses and the others, they're not famous because they were perfect, because they had unwavering faith. Moses was a normal human being who wrestled with doubt, who wavered in his faith, for sure. In Exodus chapters 4 through 5, right, this is the famous story of the burning bush. God's appear, God appears to Moses through the burning bush and he tells him, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from Egypt under the oppressive, oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And you'd imagine somebody in the hall of faith who's remembered so big or a bunch of kids are named after him, one of the most famous people of all time, that he would have responded with like this readiness and vigor. Like, yes, God, I'm ready for you to use me in this ministry. That's not what happened. Moses was scared. He was a doubter. He was hesitant. He argues with God. It gets to this point. Check out this verse on the screen. Chapter 4, 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses is a wimp. He's not so special here. He argues with God. I don't want to do this. Use somebody else. God has to keep persuading him. No, 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 I'm going to use you. This is not elite, like superhuman faith. But God ends up using him as the person that we all know by first name, the one who who was the leader of the Israelites who split a, like a sea apart and they walked across on dry land. See, as humans, I think we tend to measure faith really strictly. I don't really see God judging us that way if I'm reading the Bible correctly. And so when I put two and two together, what I garner firstly is, of course, God is very gracious and patient with human beings. But secondly, that God is looking at our genuineness of our hearts not the perfection of your, of your performance. If God used someone like Moses to change the world forever, who argued with him and was a wimp, then I wonder if my standards of what a strong faith looks like are not completely aligned with God's heart. As a pastor, I can't count how many times I've sat across a table from somebody in a cafe, at a restaurant, a church, wherever, and I've asked them questions like, oh, how's your walk with Jesus going? How's your faith going? And, and honestly, the vast majority of the time, the answer is kind of self-defeating. I, I could be better. Oh, I need to do a better job. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I've been kind of skipping out on this and that. Like, oh, I feel distant. Or if I say something like, oh, like, what do you think about getting more involved or serving or contributing this way or leading? Vast majority of the time I get, ah, I don't think I'm, like, fit for that position. Like, there's definitely more people who are better than me that should do that. You know, like, this sharing of inadequacy. That we don't believe that we're fit to make an impact, to change people's lives, to be used mightily and powerfully for, for God. Or, or it's just like, oh, that, that's not me. Like, I... I need to get my act together first. It's often our default to just lower ourselves, to have a really strict standard of what like a good spiritual impact maker would be or who they would be. When I was growing up, I grew up in a nearly all-white town, so I had no non-white friends. And I was the Korean kid, the Asian kid. 
And, you know, as little kids, they always come up to you and they're like, oh, like, how do you say this word in Korean, right? Like, that's what you get all the time. I'm sure some of you got that too. How do you say hello in Korean? Like, how do you say goodbye in Korean? And, you know, we're elementary school boys, so how do you say fart in Korean and poop in Korean? And there was one story that as a little kid, I remember this very vividly, this occasion where they came and asked me, like, hey, how do you say this in Korean? It was one of the most basic phrases, and I was like, actually, I don't know. They're like, you don't know how to say that? I thought you spoke, like, yeah, I, I do, but, and so I'm like kind of like racking my brain, how do you say that? And you know what the phrase was? You're welcome. Because first they asked me, how do you say thank you in Korean? And then they say, how do you say you're welcome in Korean? And I was like, ah. so I'm, I, I, I was realizing, I don't think anybody says you're welcome. Like, okay, so I grew up with my grandmother, my parents, they don't really speak English. Like, all the, 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 my aunts and uncles and, like, the ladies at church. Like, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, you're welcome. Like, someone gets thanked and they respond with an acknowledgement of the thanks that they're receiving. Say, oh, you're welcome. Because all the responses that I could think of my parents or other, my aunts and uncles saying, were ten different ways of rejecting the thanks. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you guys know how to say you're welcome if you grew up speaking Korean? I don't know. I don't. All I could think of was, no. <laughs> or, don't thank me. Or, it was nothing, right? I was like racking my brain. I'm like, okay, I, somebody's definitely thanked my dad. What did he say? Oh, oh, the Korean words. Ah. <laughs> I guess that's how you say it in Korean. Or my mom. How would someone thank my mom? Like, <laughs> I guess that's how you say you're welcome. I don't know how to say you're welcome. See, I grew up in a culture, maybe some of you too, where being, even when you're thanked, the default was, no, 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 no. I'm not good enough for this Thanksgiving. We lower ourselves. We push the attention away. No compliments, no praise. I didn't even know how to say you're welcome. I still don't. I'll ask my wife later. I know a lot of you grew up in this culture too where the default is to think poorly of ourselves to direct attention to someone better, someone who's more qualified than you. I do think that this cultural stream that we're, many of us are a part of and the Christian cultural stream that we're a part of, and you mash those things together, I think it leads us to questioning whether or not God really wants to use you powerfully. No, 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 not me. No, I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm, I'm too wishy-washy. Like, I have sins that I'm, like, wrestling with. Like, I'm not fit for that position. There are others who will be way better than me. I wonder if the qualifications of God using you to do great things are probably not as strict as you think they are. See, God's not asking you to be perfect. Why would he have used a doofus like Moses he wants to use you. He wants to build his kingdom through your giftings. He wants to bless his church with your presence and your friendship. He wants to change history, literally. I'm not trying to speak in superlatives and over-exaggeration through you. He uses ordinary, clumsy people like Moses to do impactful things, not because of a perfect and superhero, strong, elite faith, but because of a genuine one, an earnest one, 
an authentic one. And I think that's what the Lord is looking for in you. So God uses people with a genuine faith. And secondly, what I see through this text is God uses people with a trusting faith. And again, what I'm not saying is when everything in life is crazy, you're like, oh, I never doubt God. Like, this is perfect. Like, oh, I totally trust that, like, you know, this tornado that's happening is going to be good. Like, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is just trusting in your bones. See, in the hall of faith, the author of Hebrews mentions a lot of people. One of the things he talks about the fall of Jericho, right? That's in Joshua. God tells Joshua, you know, you're going to go and conquer, you know, this city, this fortified city. And the brilliant strategy I'm going to give you is to walk in circles. Right? Many of you know that story. Just walk. You are not to use any weapons. You are not to siege You are not to attack. You are to walk in circles over and over and over again. You can't touch it. Just walk. I grew up listening listening to that story when I was in children's ministry. So it was always just cute. But when you think about it, like imagine you're a soldier. You're like barely sleeping. You're always cold and hungry. You feel like your life is on the line. At any moment, like you could get called into action. You're nervous. You think you're going to die. You very likely could and God says, nope, no strategy, just walk. How, like, I don't know, that's like frustrating is, is like an understatement could that have been for them. Abraham is another one in the hall of faith. Abraham is told, and he and his wife at very old ages, way past childbearing age, that they were going to have a son and children and descendants more than the stars and the sand on the seashore. But they're so old. They've never had a kid before. And then God does bless them with a son. And then God tells him, hey, that son that I gave you that's supposed to be the one to start this whole thing, you should sacrifice him. Wait, what? In these stories, and there's more here in the Hall of Faith. I don't have time to talk about them all. These people are put in the most terrible situations. They only come down to trust, right? Because situationally, externally, it doesn't make sense. How are we supposed to conquer a city by walking? How am I going to have these descendants if you're telling me to sacrifice my child? See, all of these hall of faithers, something that they share is being in a situation where externally, oh my goodness, how are we supposed to wrap our minds around what you are telling us to do, God? This is nuts. This is crazy. And the other thing that they share is trusting obedience in the chaos. Joshua leads the army in walking in circles. Abraham packs a donkey and his son and they walk up the mountain. And he prepares an altar. And what happens? God gives Joshua the victory over Jericho. Abraham does become the father of many nations. So the question for us is whether we're willing to take risks and leaps of faith and confidence being led by the Spirit. Do we have an obedient faith that it's not easy to say, yes, God, this is nuts. I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I'm willing to say yes in this. Are you trusting in obedience when there's so much unknown and question marks and confusion?
a couple weeks ago, one of my best friends was in vacation, um, kind of bouncing around in Canada. And he sent me a video of, of a bridge that he and his wife had gone and walked over. It's one of the suspension bridges in Vancouver. Many, many of you have probably been to it. Um, can we show the first one? So this one. Um, how many of you would actually walk over this? Who, who was like, oh, oh, no, no, like never. It, you know, like this is pretty scary, right? I mean, it's pretty cool too. Um, maybe it, it's just dependent on like our fear of heights or our comfort of it. Or maybe you just, ah, I don't know, like is it rainy and windy that day? Is that thing slippery? Maybe like you got to bounce on it a few times first. Like I imagine we have like different, we're weighing out what would get us to or, or not, or to walk over or not. Okay, what about this next bridge? This next picture here. I don't think anybody would walk over this. If you say yes, uh, you know, probably very foolish. Uh, this thing is falling apart. It is rickety. The cords look thin. And there's a river underneath. It looks very dangerous. You'd be at risk of seriously hurting yourself or drowning. Um, not a good idea. Okay, last bridge right here. Do you recognize this? This is the Brooklyn Bridge. And many of you probably have walked over this on a nice summer or New York day or fall or something like that. And this is a walking path that they made that is very popular. I'm sure many of us have gone over it. And probably all of you would not only be willing to do the stroll across the Brooklyn Bridge and get pizza on the other side, or you would want to do it because it would be really fun and it's pretty and take pictures. So let's review. We have these two bridges. Both are bridges. That's the same. Both are really high up. That's the same. Both are very dangerous if you were to fall. That's the same. Both have rivers underneath that you would probably die and drown if you were to fall in. That's the same. But one, none of us would ever go on. That would be stupid. The other, if we lived in New York, I would do that all the time. One, we would avoid at all costs. The other, we would go out of our way to go to as a tourist to enjoy the scenery. One, we'd never be caught dead on. The other is on our bucket list. So my conclusion then is the whole like, oh, would I or would not go on the bridge? It actually has nothing to do with fear of heights. It's not a matter of the surroundings, the conditions. Oh, is it rainy that day? Is it windy? It's not about the height. Like, oh, would it, what would break my fall or the speed of the river? Is it a rapid or is it just like a still pond? Like, what we say is our determining factors. I actually don't think it's that. I think our comfort and decision doesn't come down to any of those external circumstances. Rather, it is 100% a matter of the trustworthiness of the thing that you're expecting to keep you safe and hold you. It's the structure and the trustworthiness of it, not the height. Otherwise, why would you ever step foot on the Brooklyn Bridge, or any bridge for that matter, that you've walked on? There are always rivers underneath that will kill you. But if we all took a field trip to the Brooklyn Bridge, none of us would be fearful. It's still a bridge. It's not a matter of the external circumstances. It's how greatly you trust the thing that's supposed to keep you well. See, I find that trusting God, when the situation feels risky and scary, unknown, and not secure, like, it's so hard for us to trust him. I, like, I've counseled so many of us, and I'm talking about me too, who are wrestling with, ah, oh, do I do that? It's so difficult to follow God. And I think the reason why we struggle so much with it 
is because we're so focused on the external circumstances instead of focusing on the trustworthiness of the one you're expecting to keep you safe and well. All of these people in the hall of faith had the worst external circumstances. How in the world did Joshua and Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, on and on and on, how on earth did they end up being obedient? I think it's because they were looking at the one they were putting their trust in instead of what the circumstances were. That's what enables people to be put in the hall of faith and to change the world. That's what gets people like Joshua to be like, okay, I'll walk in circles then. And I think for us, when we get to a place of life, when the circumstances around you feel like you're being told to walk in circles with an army aimlessly, if you're fixed on the strategy, you won't listen. You won't take leaps of faith. You won't have a trusting and obedient faith. Because walking in circles to defeat an army is stupid. If God tells you to build a giant boat, he says, I'm, just build this giant boat and get animals onto it. And you're only paying attention to the weather forecast and the clouds in the sky. You're not going to build the stupid boat. If God tells you you're going to escape the Egyptians through all these plagues and then you're going to get to a desert and there's going to be a sea blocking your way. If you're staring at the sea, why would you ever put your life at risk? You wouldn't. But if you're fixed on the powerful and trustworthy promises and word of God, it can give you the boldness to do anything. What couldn't or wouldn't you do? If you have that type of trusting faith, God will use you to change the world very literally. And I believe that when this world is over, when all this is said and done, new heavens and new earth, when Jesus comes back, the Hall of Faith list is going to be much, much longer than what we read. There will be millions upon millions of names added to that list, including yours. I genuinely believe, including yours. And it's not because you were ever a spiritual superhero. It's because it just takes a genuine earnestness and a willingness to trust your heavenly father. So my question is, is there a way that God wants to use you right now that you're pushing away or hesitant about or feeling inadequacy or, or, or debating with yourself? Or maybe you're like Moses and you're debating with God. No, 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 I don't want to do that. Is there something that he, some area in your life that he's asking you to follow him into something unknown or scary or, or, or risky or, or nerve-wracking? Is there something where you feel like in your gut, like God wants you to take that leap, but you're just like, oh, no, 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 like I don't want to go over that bridge. What, what is it in your life today? See, each person who walks planet Earth has their own personal calling that no one else can fulfill. You have one that is unique to you and only you, and God wants to use your life to change history for his glory. You have this open invitation to join the hall of faith. And my charge to all of us here in this room is to step up to that call. 
Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be afraid. Don't push yourself down and, and, and go through the speech of your inadequacies. Don't fixate on the circumstances and the external things like the weather. God wants to use you just as he did Moses, Abraham, Rahab, Sarah, like all these people on this list. All it really takes is a genuineness and this deep breath willing to trust him, a readiness and an openness. Let's do that, friends. I have ultimate confidence in your names being written on that list and God using you in great, great ways for his will and purpose. Not when you get older or once you get money or once you have kids. Like now, today, in your current situations, in the seat that you're in, in the, everything that the circumstances in your life today, step up to that call. Fix your eyes on the most safe bridge of all time. And let's join that hall of faith through the work of God through us. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to just thank you for the truths that we've been talking about this whole series and even the songs that we sang um, these past weeks and today. That you have freely given us this gift of your love, of being welcomed into your kingdom, of being adopted as your children. That we are white as snow. That you have equipped us. You want to use us in and our performance has nothing to do with it. And I know that in life, we're constantly battling the opposite message. As Andrew prayed earlier. You better perform at work. Layoffs are happening. You know who's going to be the first to go if you don't. You better keep up with your GPA. You know you're not going to get the job or the next program if you let that slip. You better stay in this and this and this social setting or apps or, you know, this and that in order to find a romantic partner or in order to this or that. Like, we're always told that we have to earn everything. But Lord, would we delight today that our whole identity is written by you and freely given to us, and we don't have to earn a thing. You are more trustworthy than our words could ever describe. And so I pray that you equip each and every person here with a genuineness and a trusting ability to follow you, Lord, no matter what. Because we know that you are so good you have already proven your trustworthiness to us time and time again, and you will forevermore. So I pray for your spirit's counsel and ministry over each and every person here who may be in a, in a place of, of, of nervousness or of hesitation. Maybe we beat ourselves up too much. 
And we, we say that we're not qualified to be used by you. Maybe we have a voice in our heads that tells us that we're no good. But I pray for your voice and your counsel to push out all competing ones. For it to reign supreme in our hearts and our minds. For it to dwell there so that we can marinate in it. And for us to joyfully follow you and step up to the call of joining the hall of faith and being just like these other brothers and sisters and ancestors of ours. And Lord, I want to pray specifically for this body, for Cornerstone. You have used this family for almost two decades to change history. And we want to be a part of that. And we want to ask that you give us everything we need to do that more. To glorify your name, to make much of you. To increase love in this world and freedom from, from bondage, from sin and slavery. For victories in your name to just be too many to count. We pray that you use this church in that way. And we know that that will take courage and trust and so we pray as a whole family, fill us and keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, in no other circumstance but you. So we offer ourselves up today in our unique role that only we can play. And we offer ourselves up collectively together as a church that only our church can play. And we pray, Lord, that we would change the world in all time for your glory, for your renown. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.